You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Hong Kong finds itself at a crossroads for its zero COVID strategy. After two years of sheltering behind strict rules of hotel quarantine, building an isolation camp, forcing all close contacts of COVID into quarantine, banning flights from countries with major COVID outbreaks, and almost total compliance from its population of 7 million people about wearing masks, the Omicron variant is here and is spreading. Two months ago, we watched as the US, the UK, Australia, and other countries recorded exponential growth in new cases of the Omicron variant. But this week, we find Hong Kong is caught between two realities, trying to navigate its way. In mainland China, most of the latest outbreaks have been brought under control with a combination of mass testing and citywide lockdowns. Most media attention is now focused on which athletes from which country tested positive at the Beijing Winter Olympics and are now being sent home. Meanwhile, in Europe, some countries are declaring the pandemic is over. They're talking about the end game because so many people are now vaccinated. Their hospitals are coping and they are talking about no more masks or social distancing. In the US, the seven-day average death rate has risen past 2,000, and while it's the elderly and unvaccinated who are dying at a rate beyond anything seen in this pandemic, the state governors are now removing regulations on masks. And in Australia, after enduring the longest citywide lockdowns in the world, the people are struggling to return to a normal life after Omicron cripples its hospital system and creative massive supply chain disruptions, which led to empty supermarket shelves and closed businesses because so many people were forced to isolate at home. And here we are in Hong Kong. We find ourselves at a COVID crossroads. Welcome to the latest dynamic variant of the Inside China podcast. My name is Mimi Lau, and before we go one step further, I can tell you the one thing we know about Hong Kong's dynamic zero COVID strategy is, is very dynamic. There's every chance a new announcement on COVID policies will come up once we edit and publish this podcast. So please check in on scmp.com for the latest updates on Hong Kong's Omicron situation. And here we are now in Hong Kong. And this week, we are seeing the first daily reports of more than 1,000 new cases of COVID. This is a huge psychological moment on many levels. In October last year, authorities were starting to close vaccination centers. But in January, everything changed. Back then, Hong Kong had planted a vaccine bubble, which would have meant that unvaccinated people, except those with medical exemptions, would be banned from restaurants and schools. Here in Hong Kong, we called it the dim sum ban. For many Hong Kongers, the attitude was summed up by this man quoted in a story on scmp.com on January the 5th. I was not motivated to get vaccinated. 
mostly because there are few to no local COVID-19 cases in Hong Kong, and because vaccine technology cannot catch up with the virus mutations. But now I have no choice and have to eat, right? It was meant to force older people in Hong Kong into getting vaccinated. The times have changed. In this city, which this year will celebrate the policy of one country two systems on the 25th anniversary of the handover from the UK to mainland China, let me tell you about the two system we are currently dealing with here in Hong Kong. As of today, even though I am fully vaccinated and like everyone else, I wear a mask when I go outside, I am not allowed to meet more than one person from another household outside. Not for a picnic, not for a walk, illegal. You and I can meet on a street and talk, but if someone else stops to join in the conversation, we are breaking the new restrictions on public gatherings. That's exactly what happened yesterday when a couple with two young children were walking in an outdoor plaza. They stopped to talk to two of their friends. A picture posted on Twitter, which we have since verified, shows six police officers in attendance. Each person received a $5,000 fine. That's about $640 US for breaching the rules on public gatherings. And as of midnight last night, those rules got tougher. Today, I can contact four friends from four different households and meet in a restaurant for a meal. We check our QR code, sit down, and take our mask off and talk. But only until 6 p.m. when the restaurant is restricted to only sell takeaway food. If we put our mask back on and stand outside on the street, we are breaking the law. If I'm bringing those three friends back into my place, we are breaking the law too. But there are two places where people are gathering in their hundreds, if not thousands. Long queues stretch along city blocks as Hong Kongers wait in line to get tested. And the vaccine centers are crowded with people. And there is a new vaccine center has just been opened up with people getting their shots of Sinovac or Pfizer. How do we get here? And more importantly, what comes next? You are going to hear from my colleagues here at the SCMP following the story, both from a Hong Kong perspective and from a Singaporean perspective, where they graduated through the Omicron outbreak and are now officially living with the virus. We've also got epidemiologist Dr. Ben Kaoling from the University of Hong Kong. Right now, he's stuck in the UK, unable to return to Hong Kong you will hear his forecast about how many cases we can expect in this fifth wave of the pandemic. But also, what hope does Hong Kong have for opening the border with mainland China? Can its hospitals cope? Can its tracing and quarantine system deal with the thousands of new cases of Omicron? Gigi Choi works at the Hong Kong desk for the South China Morning Post. And you last heard her on this podcast talking about her courageous effort to create flowcharts documenting how each and every individual case was linked in Hong Kong's Omicron outbreak. That was a fortnight ago. Now we are seeing daily reports of new cases in the hundreds and forecasts that Hong Kong will soon see daily cases in their thousands. 
Gigi, can you just recap for us how that situation has developed in Hong Kong this past two weeks? Sure. Um, it started with quarantine-exempt aircrew members returning from the U.S. who flouted home isolation rules when they got back to Hong Kong. One of them went for lunch in a Kowloon restaurant with a family member and a friend, and then they proceeded to infect some people who were also dining there at the same time. So that's the restaurant cluster. What happens next is the dance cluster. So another air crew member gets infected and her mom uh, loves to dance. So she goes down to Causeway Bay to dance with her friends and then has meals with them around town. And then other people who are dining there or family or household members of her friends get infected. So that results in more than 50 cases. Then there's a separate cluster that begins when a woman gets cross-infected during hotel quarantine and passes it on to her husband, who visits one of the high-rise towers in a public housing estate in Kwaichung, resulting in an explosion of cases at the estate. There are now almost 800 cases linked to that cluster. Then we have the cluster which made worldwide headlines, the hamster-related cluster, so that started with a pet shop saleswoman getting infected and then testing hamsters at pet shops, finding that they also tested positive for the virus. Then we have vertical and horizontal transmission at buildings. So now there are more than 80 cases which came out of that cluster. So Gigi, are clusters still being tracked as we speak today on Wednesday? Or has that focus moved to counting how many new cases out there now? So clusters are still being tracked, but we just aren't getting as much information on them as we did before. So previously I was able to uh, track cases using flowcharts because I know like, ah, like who, whose family member is this or somebody's colleague got infected. But now there are just too many cases that even at the press conferences, uh, the health officials aren't going into as much details. Like you can't ask about an individual case because it's more of a big picture, kind of only summarize like where the big outbreaks are, just so the public can get an idea of where the high risk areas are. But now that there are so many cases, it's almost like everywhere is high risk. You've got, you know, hundreds, thousands of people lining up for compulsory testing. People are waiting hours. It's, it's crazy. <laughs> So the latest news we've got this morning is that Hong Kong is likely to report 1,100 cases today. And that is the first time Hong Kong has ever reported that much. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's the first time we're seeing four-digit cases since the pandemic began in January 2020. Before we were kind of freaking out, I guess, freaking out in Hong Kong over three-digit cases. So the record number of cases got broken three times uh, recently. So the first time we had never gone over 200 cases, then we reported 300, 300 plus. Then we reported 600 plus for two days. But now, yeah, this is the first time we've seen over a thousand. And the thing is, we're not even at the peak yet. Reports are quoting academics saying the peak is likely to arrive at the end of this month or early next month. Yeah, I think one important thing to note is uh, we just came out of the Chinese New Year break. So that's a period when a lot of people go and visit their family members to wish them Happy New Year. So actually, health authorities have already been reporting some clusters related to family gatherings. And 
because you can also expect testing to not be at its capacity during the holiday. So we, we should be expecting more cases coming out of these gatherings within the next few days. So, for example, today we're already seeing 800 preliminary positive cases, which is not a good sign because that also means we'll probably be over a thousand cases tomorrow. So based on that, we can expect to see 1,000 plus cases each day, or if not, I'd say high triple digits each day for, I, I think, the next week or next few weeks. So Gigi, has the Hong Kong government advisors given any indication of a forecast of cases for the next two weeks or month? Have you heard anything along those lines these days? I don't think they've given any exact numbers but they have been warning that the cases will continue to rise exponentially just because there's so many untraceable cases and each untraceable case can have many transmission links. So they've been warning about these silent transmission cases for since we've had hundreds of cases even, and now we've reached an even higher number. Previously, when we were still in you know, the lower hundreds, they were saying that it would take two to three months just to control the pandemic. So you'd imagine that it'd take much longer now that we have much more cases. So now that Hong Kong has recorded this exponential spike, surpassing 1,100 cases, and the Hong Kong government also announced some of the toughest pandemic control measures the city has yet seen before. Can you run us by uh, what were those measures and how are people responding to them? Sure. I mean, uh, yesterday, the chief executive, Carrie Lam, came out and announced the new measures at a press briefing yesterday. So those include uh, caps on public gatherings, uh, tightened to two people, an unprecedented move, actually, to cap household gatherings to two. So we've never seen that before. And again, restaurants have been capped at two people per table as well, unless you're a type D restaurant where the diners and the restaurant staff are fully vaccinated. So that's been cut to four people per table. They've also doubled the fine for ignoring mandatory testing orders. And uh, the major new announcements is the vaccine pass, which begins on February 24th, getting extended to shopping malls, uh, department stores, supermarkets and wet markets. There is a lot of debate on that previously because we've heard that officials were considering introducing it to public transport, but they ended up not doing so. And, you know, the outbreak has gotten so bad that there's been a run on vegetables just because some of the truck drivers have gotten infected and there's been a holdup at the checkpoints due to quarantine and disinfection. So we've seen vegetable prices skyrocket. Uh, single broccoli costs you know, more than 100 Hong Kong dollars. So we've seen supermarkets getting emptied. It's quite the scene. Previously, it was toilet paper. Now we've got vegetables. So Gigi, it looks like there's only 11 hours left for you to get a haircut if you're going to get one. Are you going to join the crowd to lined up outside one of those hair salons? Uh, no, <laughs> just getting back to work today. So I think I might be too busy to get a haircut. But yeah, definitely. I've ha- I have heard friends and family members booking last minute salon appointments. Thank you, Gigi. Thank you for having me. We have had Dr. Ben Cowling on this podcast several times over the past two years. 
Last time you heard from him was in December when he was talking to SCMP podcast producer Jerry Watt in his office at the Hong Kong U School of Public Health. Late last night, Jared dialed him up on Zoom for an update on his forecast of what he thinks is next for Hong Kong. Dr. Ben Cowling, at the beginning of December 2021, I spoke with you about this new variant called Omicron. Here we are at the beginning of February, and Hong Kong has reported its first day of more than a thousand new cases. So let's cut to the chase, Doctor. Based on what you know about infection rates in Hong Kong, what is your forecast for the next month and the months to come? What we've seen in the last maybe two or three weeks is infections doubling maybe every three days, maybe two to three days. So if they're doubling every three days, that translates into increases in case numbers as well, because most infections have been confirmed as cases, not every infection, many have been. As time goes on, we may see more infections that don't get confirmed. So we may not see an exact correlation between true infections and cases but infections have been increasing, maybe doubling every three days. That means, although it's scary that today, yesterday we had a thousand cases, you know, in a few days' time it could be two thousand. A few days after that, could be four thousand, and so on. And as we've seen in other countries, other parts of the world, when Omicron gets going, it rises. The infections rise very rapidly and peak very quickly. So if we look at what might happen in Hong Kong with the current trajectory. It looks like we might be heading towards a sharp peak in early or mid March. That's in about a month from now. Obviously, the case numbers are still low right now. In a month's time, I don't think they'll be low. I think they'll be very high, and that means we've got a little bit of time now to think about how we're going to mitigate. Because if we can slow down transmission and spread out infections over a longer period of time, it's going to do good for those people who are infected around the peak. Because we know there's going to be a, a real crush on hospitals, particularly on intensive cares. So working out how to do that, that's called mitigation. So you, you want to try and slow down transmission and also try to do measures that are scalable. And what I mean by that is, until now, every case has been isolated in hospital. And that's okay if you've got 10 cases. It's okay if you've got 100 cases. It might even be okay if you've got 1,000 cases. But in a couple of weeks' time, let's say there might be 10,000 cases, you can't put them all in hospital. So fairly soon, we're going to have to think about what to do with mild cases and also how to make sure that we manage every patient appropriately. That might include creating fever clinics, maybe next to public hospitals or GOPCs, where people that think they might have COVID can go and get tested. And we spend more testing capacity on testing people who might have COVID rather than at the moment the, the, the CTNs and the RTDs that are kind of broad brush approaches to try and find cases in, in particular housing estates or particular areas. I think in the future, the testing is going to focus on people who may actually have COVID because they've got symptoms or because they, they're worried about it. Going to fever clinics, going to maybe designated COVID clinics because not every COVID patient has a fever and so on. And then home isolation. I don't think we'll see quarantine outside the home because we don't have the, the space for it. And vaccination, particularly of the elderly, is now absolutely critical. If we look at the impact of Omicron in other parts of the world, it's tended not to have so much impact. And that's not necessarily because Omicron is a milder virus. It's just as severe. The reason that I think it's had less impact in South Africa first is because they had a lot of immunity from natural infections, from big epidemic waves of, of earlier strains. In Europe, it hasn't had as much impact as, as previous epidemics because they have vaccinations. They vaccinate a lot of their elderly. I think 80, 90 percent is, is, is pretty common coverage in, in older people in Europe. In Hong Kong, we only have 20 percent of people 
over the age of 80 with two doses, maybe 25% now. It's really a very low coverage and Omicron is not mild in unvaccinated elderly, unfortunately. So the mortality rates that we saw in previous waves of about 1%, 1.5% of cases, I really worry that, that if we have a lot of elderly infected in the coming month or two months, that we'll unfortunately see still quite a bit of mortality because the vaccination coverage hasn't been high enough. And for me right now, the absolute priority would be to try and vaccinate as many elderly as quickly as possible, because anything we can do now could save lives. And I, I'm a little bit concerned that when we can administer 70,000 vaccinations per day in Hong Kong recently, the majority of those are not vaccines administered to elderly. Actually, only, only a minority of those 70,000 jabs are given to elderly. It's, it's people coming for their third doses and, and children coming for their first and second doses, which I'm not against. But I think elderly should be the top priority right now and could really save a lot of lives, given where the, the epidemic's heading. Dr. Cowling, are we at the crossroads of the zero COVID, or dare I say in the Hong Kong government's words, dynamic zero COVID strategy here in Hong Kong? Well, I think dynamic zero COVID has a lot of advantages. If the strategy works, if you can keep infections at a low level, especially if you can stay at zero for periods of time, like we had six months at zero, that's a good part of the strategy. But if you can't control outbreaks when they occur, as we're finding now, it's very difficult to stop Omicron. That's a problem for the, for the dynamic zero COVID strategy, because it means that instead of maybe where the mainland cities have done it and have got back to zero very quickly, minimizing the disruption and the health impact, we're probably not going to be able to do that. But I'm not sure if, if dynamic zero COVID is, 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 uh, is, is really over in Hong Kong. What might happen is, is in a few months' time, maybe after this epidemic's over, numbers of cases come down to a lower level. So, you know, we're now, we were 100, now we're at 1,000. I'm sure the numbers are going to go up in the coming weeks. At some point, they're going to come back down again. You know, three months' time, maybe we're back to 100 a day, and then we're down to 50 a day. At that point, I, I think it's a possibility that the government could say they're going to bring back the measures for zero and say, you know, they're going to do all the contact tracing, the travel measures to keep the virus out of the community and try and get back to zero and then try to stay at zero. And whereas today, I think it's almost impossible to think about getting back to zero, given the amount of transmission that's going on in the community. Once we've had a lot of infections and we got a high level of immunity against Omicron, if there's no other variants on the radar, if there's you know not, not a new one on the radar, then actually we, we could use that immunity to our advantage in the sense of getting back to zero and staying at zero. But uh, I'm not sure if there would be as much justification for the zero COVID approach after we've had a lot of infections. Really, the, one of the big selling points for zero COVID approach is to protect the healthcare system and to reduce mortality from COVID epidemics. But if we've already got a high level of immunity in the population, particularly against severe disease, and we've already seen the impact of COVID on the healthcare system, in some sense, you know, zero COVID wouldn't be so attractive anymore because we don't need to fear so much what would happen in the future, given the levels of immunity that we're likely to have in our population. So we'd be more in a situation like South Africa, where they've got such a high level of immunity that, that really, even if they have further COVID epidemics, it's unlikely that they're going to have substantial hospitalizations and substantial deaths. And that's the big selling point of zero COVID, to, to minimize those. But, but if they're already minimized by immunity. Of course, the other reason for zero COVID is to have a travel bubble with the mainland. And I, I think that's still attractive for a number of reasons. And that may be one of the issues that, that has to be resolved in, in the coming weeks. Because, of course, right now, we, we don't have a travel bubble with the mainland. We don't have an open border to the rest of the world. In fact, we have a lot of flight bans from the rest of the world. I think 
today, yesterday, there were a small number of imported cases and a thousand confirmed cases. And it actually, it, it doesn't make sense to have travel restrictions when you've got so many local cases. It costs the economy to have travel bans. It's uncomfortable for some residents to, to face those travel restrictions. And in, in public health terms, having a handful of additional cases coming in, generally mild, doesn't really you know, pose any extra burden to the healthcare system. So I would actually suggest thinking about pausing the travel restrictions, at least while this epidemic's going on. If the government wants to go back to zero COVID, you know, when this epidemic's over, that's another question. And maybe the travel restrictions, they think about bringing them back. But right now, I, I don't think there's much public health rationale for restricting incoming travel, given we've got so much infection locally already. Dr. Cowling, one of the benefits of working at the South China Morning Post is that we have a very international newsroom. We have people from Singapore, from Melbourne, from the US, from the UK, as well as Hong Kong as mainland China. As a result of that, we have a perspective. You know, we look at Singapore, population 5 million. We've seen the Omicron peak pass, and now people are being simply asked to isolate at home. In Melbourne, also population 5 million. We saw the health system come close close. We saw the health system come close to collapse. We saw supermarket shelves empty because there was no, because because there were so many workers out sick. How does Hong Kong plot the middle way through this? I, I think early communication is really important. At the moment, the government's still very focused on containment measures. For example, finding every case and isolating them in hospital. And we know that very soon that's not going to be possible. And if we could communicate sooner that there's going to be a switch to home isolation for mild cases, there's going to be designated COVID clinics set up where people can go specifically for COVID for testing and so on. I think that would make a big difference. And also reassuring people that they don't need to stockpile stuff. They don't need to, you know, to go and get all the stuff in the supermarket to, to save up for weeks. Because we know that if people start worrying about that kind of thing, it, it just starts a run. And then in the past, we've had issues with other products, supermarkets having stock, but not having it on the shelves because it takes time to, to, to get things from the warehouse off to the shelves. And then when, when people worry about it, it's really not good and it can be prevented by advanced communication about what happens. So, for example, if you are a COVID case and you're told to isolate at home, what can and can't you do? If the rule is that you have to stay within the four walls of your home for 14 days, and if you need anything, you have to find family members to get it for you. I don't think that's particularly feasible. And in other countries, I've never heard of, of that kind of policy. Uh, there's always been a policy where if you need to go out, you can go out, but wear a mask. And you know, if you really need help, there's a hotline where you can call, right? If you really need something and you don't think you can go and get it yourself, maybe because your condition or whatever, there will be someone that can help you to do that. And at the moment, I haven't heard what's the plan in, in those kind of scenarios. Are you watching the new developments of pills and treatments for, for COVID? Do you think these will change the conversation for Hong Kong as it gets through this phase of the pandemic? I, I think it's fantastic that those pills are now available, the antiviral dose, particularly the antiviral from Pfizer. I'm not sure if we have it yet in Hong Kong or when we're going to get it. If we could get some of that very soon, I would really like to see that being used in maybe designated COVID clinics, in GOPCs, in A&E departments, particularly for older people who may have mild symptoms, test positive for COVID, give them the antiviral because we know that it can reduce the chance they progress to severe disease. But you have to give it early. It's not going to be useful if you wait until people are hospitalized. That's usually too late in the illness for the antiviral to have much effect. It has to be given to higher risk people 
in the community as early as possible in, in their onset. And I think one of the other things that we may be missing in Hong Kong is rapid tests. In other parts of the world, rapid tests have made a big difference. If you or I have a, a pack of rapid tests at home, we can use them if we're worried we might have COVID, we test ourselves and then we act accordingly if it's positive, we isolate ourselves. And also if we know we've been exposed to someone else, we can pay particular attention. We can maybe do rapid testing daily for a few days. And then we don't need to rely on, on going to the, the GOPCs, the A&Es or the, the designated clinics, whatever, because we, it's all in our own hands with the rapid test in our own home. And we could also think about safely reopening schools at some point, but asking kids to do a rapid test every morning. So if kids do a rapid test every morning, if negative, they can go to school. If it's positive, alert the school and the kid has to isolate for, for a week, maybe. Those would be a real asset to Hong Kong. But right now we, we don't have it. I hope that we'll be able to get rapid tests into the city, distribute them, and then actually use, use as many as we can, I would say. What do you think of this idea in Singapore that just counting the number of new cases isn't sufficient anymore at this stage of the pandemic? We need to evolve and simply tell the public of the number of hospitalizations, the people in intensive care, and the people who've died. Well, I think that's very sensible. So what we've done in the past is recognize that there's a correlation between the number of infections and the number of confirmed cases. In earlier waves in Hong Kong, my, my own team in Hong Kong University estimated it was maybe four to one, maybe five to one. So if every confirmed case, there were another maybe four infections, five infections. I think that's, that's the situation right now in Hong Kong. When we have a thousand confirmed cases, it's probably 4,000 infections in the community. And then 3,000 were not tested, not confirmed for various reasons. 1,000 were. But as time goes on, as, as numbers increase, less and less infections will be tested because of limits in testing capacity, maybe recommendations for home isolation, there's no need to get tested and so on. So the ratio is going to change. And that means if we rely on the case counts, we're not going to have a true reflection of patterns in incidents. So instead, what we can look at is the subset of severe cases, and particularly hospitalization and, and intensive care unit admissions, because those tend to be a fairer reflection of infections. For example, for every 50 infections, there might be one person who needs to be hospitalized or two people who need to be hospitalized, whatever. And so when you see a certain number of hospitalizations, you can kind of infer how many infections there must have been that, that led to that. So I think that makes a lot of sense, and, and that's most likely what we will do in Hong Kong. But I'm not sure what the rules are going to be, what the thresholds are going to be for admission to hospital and also for admission to intensive care. Usually when there's more space available, it's easier for people to be admitted, for example, with a particular oxygen saturation level. You know, I, I think that 95 or 92 or 90 or whatever, you know, if you're below a certain threshold, you could get admitted to hospital for monitoring. And if you're above, then you're sent home. And those thresholds tend to change as case numbers increase. And for intensive care, one of the things that's happened is really approaching full capacity in intensive cares, then there's a triage system where unfortunately some people who would have been in, admitted into intensive care ordinarily, unfortunately are, are not able to be admitted into intensive care because of the capacity limits and then the pressure on space. And that of course leads to then a higher mortality rate from COVID. And that's what we've been trying to avoid for the last two years, of course, is you know the, the, the recognition that healthcare systems can't cope with, with large numbers of, of COVID infections all at the same time. The difference now is we have vaccinations. And I think if we had a very high vaccination coverage in elderly locally, say 90, 95% of elderly vaccinated in Hong Kong with two doses, particularly with two doses of BioNTech, I think if we had such a high level of vaccine coverage, we wouldn't need to be so concerned as we are now because we, we recognize that the, the higher the vaccine coverage is, the less severe COVID there's going to be in, in this most vulnerable group. 
Speaking about vaccination, Dr. Cowling, what do you think about this idea that they're putting forward in Australia that suggests that three doses of vaccine will now be the standard to qualify as being fully vaccinated? Is that something Hong Kong should be thinking about in the future? I think in the early days of the vaccination program, this would be about a year ago in Hong Kong, it made sense to think about classifying people their vaccination status. So we could track what's the level of coverage in the population, how much immunity do we have from vaccinations, you know, at what point might we, we consider that we're relatively safer, even if COVID does start to spread. But as time's gone on, it's actually got more complicated to assess someone's level of immunity. So if you were vaccinated a year ago with two doses, it would be better to get a third dose now. But if you've only recently had two doses, actually there's no urgency to get a third dose. You can wait. And at the same time, if you have a, an infection, and in Hong Kong, I, I think I might be an infection in the, the coming two or three months, that would take the place of a third dose. And in Australia, I would say the same thing. So in a way, I'm actually not so keen on, on using classifications for vaccination status anymore because I think their time has passed. And one of my particular concerns is what's the exit ramp for these kind of vaccine passes? I've seen a number of countries restrict entry to only people that are vaccinated. And that, of course, doesn't recognize immunity from natural infections. It only recognizes immunity from vaccinations. And I think the approach taken, I believe, in Thailand, where pe people want to come in, they need health insurance, but they don't necessarily need to be vaccinated. To me, that makes a lot more sense because vaccination or infection will give you immunity against future infections and particularly against severe disease. And I think in the future, I, I don't know, I, I'm just personally not that keen on, on seeing a lot of mandates everywhere for vaccination and having restrictions and punishments for people who aren't vaccinated, but might now be just as immune as people who were vaccinated if they get infected, particularly if they have a number of infections. So looking to the future, I hope that we'll see these kind of vaccine passes phased out because I don't think they're so necessary anymore. I think they, they had a place maybe a year ago, six months ago, but uh, that their time hopefully will, will, will be phased out because once you have a high level of immunity in the population, it's not so critical to push vaccines anymore. It's not so critical to track vaccine coverage anymore. There's other ways to do it apart from with these vaccine passports. And one particular thing I would say is in Hong Kong, we have a vaccine coverage in younger adults of about 80% with two doses and people now getting their third doses. In middle-aged adults, also 80%. In older adults, it's you know, 50% in, in 70 to 79, 25% maybe in, in over 80s. It's really a problem in the older people. Having a vaccine mandate, to me, I, I don't understand completely why we need a vaccine mandate for younger adults. If the uptake is already 80%, with a mandate, you're going to push it to, to 85 or 90, but that's okay. But I think 80% wasn't too bad. It's really the older adults where we need to focus. And by putting a mandate out there now, for the 24th of February to say, if you want to go in a shopping mall, you need to have vaccination. Actually, we're diverting in Hong Kong vaccination shots, doses, towards younger adults, when really I would prefer that they're almost all now being given to older people, because older people are the ones who need them the most. And so in a sense, I mean, I, yes, to go have made sense, although it, as WHO say, it should only be a matter of last resort. If vaccine coverage is really too low, and you've exhausted all the other possibilities for getting vaccine coverage up. Right now, I would understand a vaccine mandate in older people to say that if you want to go in a shopping mall and you're over the age of 60, then you have to be vaccinated as a way to really push vaccine uptake as quick as possible. I'm not sure why, why it's gone out for all ages, 
because I think right now your vaccinations in elderly would be the absolute top priority. We did speak about the future. Dr. Ben Cowling in the future. Hope to see you back in Hong Kong. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Over the past two years in this pandemic, Hong Kong has constantly referred to Singapore. How are we doing compared to Singapore? Can we open a travel bubble with Singapore? And of course, is Hong Kong losing its staff and its international banking reputation to Singapore? Over the past months, we've seen Singapore transition from a zero COVID policy to its concept referred to as living with COVID. Pavan Pragas is one of our lead reporters for the Asia Desk and has been keeping a close eye on his hometown. Hello, Pavan. Hi, Mimi. So, Pavan, in terms of Omicron outbreaks, how does Hong Kong compare to Singapore? We have just seen in our daily record of over 1,000 cases. How does it compare to the situation over there? Right. I think the biggest difference is that Singapore transitioned to this thing called living with COVID sometime in the third quarter of, of last year, right? Singapore right now is seeing daily cases of 13,000. And that's due to, you know, the transmissibility of the Omicron variant. At the same time, with the vaccination rate that's one of the world's highest across all age groups, including the elderly, it has meant that the high daily caseload has not resulted in a surge in hospitalization. In fact, the numbers have divorced, right? So the number of people who are in hospitals, who need oxygen, who are in ICU, have remained at very low levels despite the high daily caseload. And the government has set out very clearly different protocols for people to abide by, you know, depending on their symptoms. So there's something called protocol one. If you are on protocol one, it means that you are symptomatic, you feel ill, and you can go to a clinic or a hospital and you'll get treatment. If you need it, you can be admitted. But by and large, a lot of people right now, the 13,000 people you know, who, who were found to be infected yesterday, for example, most of them are what they call protocol two infections. So they took an ART test at home and you know it, it's positive. So what the government wants you to do is if you have minimal symptoms, if you uh, don't really need to go and see a doctor, the advice is stay at home for 72 hours. After that, take an ART test. If you're negative, you are good to go. So really, this country has transitioned to treating COVID-19 almost like the common flu. So we live with this constant fear of being sent to a quarantine facility if we are declared a close contact here. What happens in Singapore if the same thing happened in Hong Kong? Uh, I mean, firstly, you are not going to be sent to some scary sounding place I mean, all my friends in Hong Kong, we, we are terrified of being a close contact or even getting the virus because there's all these horror stories of Penis Bay. Some of it obviously exaggerated, but you know nobody wants to go to Penis Bay or, or be stuck in a hospital for days on end, right? But in Singapore, if you get COVID-19, as I said, you know there's very clear protocols. If you're ill, you go and see a doctor. If the doctor deems you quite severely ill or you need constant attention, they will send you to a hospital or a community care facility, they call it. And then down there, you get the care you need. You recover or you, you get the oxygen supply that you need. And, you know, you recover, you, it's all done. You come out. But most people don't need it. You just stay at home, do your self-tests. 
And if required, there is telemedicine where the service is provided. You speak to a doctor via video link as we are doing right now for this podcast. And the doctor assesses you. You tell him your symptoms. And if needed, he will prescribe you some drugs, cough medicine and so on. It will be mailed to you by a delivery person. A lot of people are utilizing this. I was just on Instagram just now. A friend was posting about how a delivery man had just mailed her the medicine, you know, just one or two hours after the e-consultation. Mm, that's really interesting, Bafan. Uh, what else do you notice are some of the biggest difference in the policy approach between the two places? I mean, just to be quite objective, I think in Singapore, the government does not only say, but is seen by the public as making COVID policy and undertaking COVID policy based on science, right? And it's consistent. Mm. And they have taken some heat for the, the kind of measures they have put forth, like when I hit with living with COVID in the middle of last year, like the skeptics here in Hong Kong, you know, a lot of the local Hong Kong health commentators are big time living with COVID skeptics. And some of them even, you know, quite snidely were, were scoffing at Singapore last year when the Singapore government decided to transition to living with COVID. And, and the authorities there also had to deal with such sentiment at home. Many people were risk averse, but they pressed ahead and said, you know, we are a small city state. The economy really depends on opening up. So we have to try and move there to that point. So we have seen them stuck to the guns with, with not pursuing extreme measures such as the partial lockdowns of 2020 and, you know, trying their best to push ahead with border openings and, and social distancing easing. So we have seen now we see food and beverage establishment, for example, which were previously quite proscribed. Now they are they open until 10.30. Mostly, I think you cannot serve alcohol after 10.30. There are some rules surrounding music in indoor settings because they don't want people to be shouting at their friends so you can only have some soft music. I mean, that's one of the quirky Singapore style, you know, rules that people are just accept. This is what the government says we will do it. You can gather in, in groups of five in, in restaurants and so on. And that last week, Chinese New Year, that was the rule as well. Again, on social media, I saw a lot of people gathering in groups of five and, you know, and a lot of people quite proactively are doing ARTs you know, daily or otherwise, just to be cautious because some of them live with their elderly parents or so on and so on. So if they are socializing, if they are going and visiting friends, then they make sure that they are also constantly getting tested. So, Bafan, we're reading that um, these testing kits are commonly available in the streets of Singapore via vending machines. But for me, like if I have to get them, actually, I did get them. Um, I have to go to the local hospital and find a vending machine there and they cost $120 each. What's it like, the situation right. there? Firstly, last year, the government had a nationwide distribution of antigen rapid tests, as we call it here in Hong Kong and Singapore. Uh, some other places call it RAT tests. So there was that. The government was giving out free ART tests. But when they transitioned to living with COVID, testing was front and center of the, of the strategy. So I think they have got ample supply. And that has meant that you can get a test for something like eight to ten Sing dollars, if I'm not wrong, which is comes up to about sixty Hong Kong dollars or cheaper, I think, if you know if you find those bulk buys. So 
that's what people are doing. They, there's easy access to tests. Most companies also give their employees this test if they expect the employees to come to work. So I think the, the testing regime in Singapore right now and where Hong Kong is right now, you know, is worlds apart. As is, you know, the entire COVID management strategy, this is a tale of two cities, really. Yeah. Mm. So while Hong Kong has made minimal changes to its quarantine restrictions, forcing all new arrivals into hotel quarantine, can you tell us the situation there in Singapore? Right. The biggest part about the travel strategy is the so-called vaccinated travel lanes, right? So the VTLs, there are some 24 countries which Singapore has vaccinated travel lanes. As we all know, uh, Hong Kong and Singapore tried for a travel bubble sometime last year didn't work out. I think four times they tried but failed. So essentially, the idea behind this VTLs is a travel bubble. On both sides, there are tests depending on the country's requirements for the tests are different. But essentially, it means that you can travel between the countries that have VTLs without quarantine, right? So in December, for example, a lot of Singaporeans were were traveling, were, were doing their holidays in the UK, the US, Europe that really brought a sense of normalcy back to life because this is a, a, such a small city state that people before the pandemic were traveling so much around the region. They felt so cooped up in the two years. And when the VTLs came, there was this huge demand that the airlines couldn't satisfy. But a lot of people have been traveling. When Omicron hit, the government kind of restricted some of the VTLs in terms of bringing the numbers down, but by and large, it has continued and it's been a success so, so far. One of the next big milestones in terms of traveling for Singapore is a broader, unfettered opening to neighboring Malaysia because a lot of people in both countries have families on each side and people usually would be traveling on weekends or, you know, for short trips. And that has completely been stopped. The, the causeway between the two countries used to be one of the world's most busiest land crossings. Right now, there's some traffic, but obviously heavily restricted. Bavan, were you surprised that there were no restrictions on family gatherings in Hong Kong over the Lunar New Year? I noticed Singapore limits residents to having just five visitors to their homes a day over the past week of holidays, right? Uh, in a way, I'm not surprised because over the course of the pandemic, there are moments in Hong Kong where one wonders if the authorities are making decisions based on science or other factors. You know, so the policy allowing families together in such fashion over Chinese New Year is, is one such instance where it is quite reasonable to question whether authorities have science at the center of their policy. So... Could you tell us a bit about your family experience and what your friends told you about last week over the holiday period? My family, we don't celebrate Chinese New Year, but, you know, the visiting friends and so on, uh, I think it was quite quite normal. COVID wasn't weighing on their minds. And the thing is, I have elderly parents, all triple vaccinated, all have got their boosters. So entire family is vaccinated. Once it opened up to us, we got vaccinated. Uh, that's the case with so many people, right? Because you look at the eligible proportion of the population that has got vaccinated, I think 90 plus percent now. The next phase of the exercise is obviously the children 5 to 11, and then eventually it will come down to the infants. 
in a way it has helped in Hong Kong in that their public messaging surrounding vaccination really has worked. It didn't involve threats. Also, it did not involve any kind of financial incentives. Really, it's about science. It's about health. People repeatedly telling you that this will save you, will save your families. And then in the last few months where the government decided that, you know, for the remaining percentage of people who were not getting vaccinated, there will be a disincentive in that we have now started vaccination differentiation measures, they call it, where if you are not vaccinated, you cannot partake in a large part of, of social life, which is what is coming to Hong Kong right now, right? Yes. So when that when that policy does come into effect in Hong Kong, I think you you will see a vaccination rate surge. And as we are seeing right now, I've seen the numbers in Hong Kong, like tens of thousands of people are getting vaccinated every day. Yeah, the vaccination slots actually are all booked up until all the way to March. Bafan, I got one last question for you. It was so interesting that uh, Singapore's health minister, Ong Yi Kung, says the top line data of counting how many new cases is now less and less relevant. What do he mean by that? It is less and less relevant in Singapore's context, where Singapore has a high vaccination rate across all age groups, including the elderly. So whether it's 13,000 yesterday or, you know, if it rises, what matters is whether there are hospital beds that can cope with people who get severely ill, whether there are facilities for oxygen. And all those are there because, as I said earlier, the number of daily cases and the hospitalization rate has clearly divorced. It's completely gone the other way. And why is that? It's because the vaccines are working. There are few other places in the world that will definitively tell you that vaccines are working. Here is this country of 5.45 million people, 90 plus percent vaccinated. They have got 13,000 daily cases and life is going back to normal. So the message is get vaccinated. It's plain and simple. Thank you so much for sharing your perspective yeah. over what's going on in Singapore, which Hong Kong had so much to learn from. We look forward to bringing you back in future episodes. Um, thank you so much for your time, Bavan. Thank you. That's all we have for you this week inside China. But we are far from finished with the Omicron outbreak here in Hong Kong. Or more accurately, Omicron is not done with us yet. It really looks like a turning point for Hong Kong as the quarantine hotels and the isolation wards are filling up. But exactly which way the government turns remains to be seen. Stay tuned to SEMP.com for changes in laws on public gatherings, new directions in government policy and more explanations of what dynamic zero COVID means. And you can always follow us on Twitter at SEMP News. You can also follow me at GZMimi. My name is Mimi Lau. Stay safe. And if you're outside Hong Kong, stay away from your friends. Bye for now.